answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth. It was because here in this land, we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. My country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee, I sing. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. All right, good morning, my friends. It is eight minutes after the hour of nine o'clock, and it is a Wednesday, the sixth morning of the twelfth month in the year of our Lord, 2023. We've got a nice program lined up for you this morning, an important one with a lot of very important things to talk about. You think the abortion debate is over because of the passage of Issue 1 on November 7th? Of course, it's not. As a matter of fact, neither is the weed debate, for that matter, which was the passage of Issue 2. There are a lot of things that are still happening in Columbus. Uh, legislators are working very, very hard to see what they can do to try to save lives while still respecting the constitutional amendment and more. We're going to talk to uh, a person at uh, 11 o'clock this morning, right after the top of the hour there, by the name of Bobby Gosden, who has written a book called My Abortion, My Regret. Um, it's a look, firsthand look kind of at exactly what it sounds like, the personalization of abortion and abortion decisions and those who have, uh, made that decision. And then, uh, and then it did indeed experience profound regret and how they're trying to sound the alarm to warn other people and particularly women, uh, about, um, and I say people because, you know, it involves the father as well, the father of the child in many cases where the, he doesn't just, impregnate a woman and run when the decision is made um it impacts his life as well so anyway uh it's important we're going to talk to her at 11 11 10 this morning and uh, jack windsor from the ohio press network will join us at 10 10 this morning to talk about that weed issue and a whole host of other things so two good guests and uh your phone calls of course at 216-901-0945-888-281-1110 we want to get you up and on the radio before we start with our news of the day Let's go ahead and get our pledge. Patriots, if you got a flag nearby, look at it, stare at it, stand before it if you are able to do so. Put your hand on your heart and join us. If you are a believer in the surrender of a sovereign nation 
at the same time, you are surrendering uh, ethnic and religious Jews to anti-Semitism the way Democrats are in the United States Congress. If you believe in any of those things, that means you are obviously anti-liberty. If you are anti-liberty, then you don't believe in this flag. So don't fake it. You don't have to stand for it. Instead, take a knee like the little Marxist that you are. For the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Really torn this morning as to whether or not I want to start with the border, latest, latest border atrocities uh, or the atrocity in the, in the uh, Congress last night. As over 100 House Democrats refused to vote for a simple resolution, symbolic, without any weight or any teeth to it, but just a symbolic resolution saying we oppose anti-Semitism. We condemn anti-Semitism. As students and Jews all over the country, workers, continue to be intimidated and harassed, if not outright assaulted, by the tablecloth wearers, the ones who wear those checkered tablecloth things around their necks, what are they called, kefias or something goofy like that? doesn't matter. I don't care. I don't give a rip. What I do care about is the fact that they are intimidating and harassing and assaulting Jews. And Jews uh, continue to suffer this, apparently with the complete indifference of the government, or at least a portion of it. Over 100 House Democrats refused to vote for this resolution last night. I guess I've made my decision. We'll come to the border shortly. Over 100 members, 13 of them voted outright no, 13 Democrats. One Republican voted outright no on a resolution condemning anti-Semitism. You might know who it is. It's not an Ohioan, but, but you might know who it is, and it's stunning. And, it's, and I've had about enough, and it's about time for him to go. I'll get there, though. But 13 Democrats voted no while dozens and dozens and dozens of others voted present or did not vote at all. In other words, they refused to vote for a resolution condemning anti-Semitism. It was House Resolution 894 introduced by Republican Representative David Kustoff of Tennessee. It simply declared that we as a body, as American leaders and representatives of the people, oppose and condemn anti-Semitism, the likes of which is is off the charts right now in the United States, particularly after what happened on October 7th. Members of the squids, I'm sorry, the squad, the left-wingers, including uh, Sharia Tlaib of Michigan, tablecloth wearer, uh, Jihad Omar of Minnesota, uh, Muslim Cori Bush of Missouri, who d- can't figure out what she's doing. Alexandria Damasio-Cortez of New York, who is just a straight-up Marxist. Uh, Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts. They were all among the no votes. Democratic Representative Pramila Jayapal, who basically said that, look, I don't dislike women, I just hate Jews more. She didn't say those words, but when she refused in that conversation with Dana Bash that we played uh, for you before, um, she refused to condemn the rape, the use of sexual assault and rape as a weapon of war, which Hamas did on Jewish women in Israel on October 7th. She refused to condemn it without getting an equal amount of condemnation for what Israel is doing in Gaza. Simply unimaginable, indefensible, incomprehensible. But that's what she did. 
She also voted no. Some of the other Democrats who voted present, refusing to condemn the anti-Semitism that is the worst we have probably seen since 1939, were Representative Hakeem Jeffries, the House Minority Leader. How about that? Hakeem Jeffries. James Clyburn, who's supposed to know a thing or two about civil rights for minorities because he's James Clyburn of South Carolina. But apparently the Jewish minority doesn't count. Barbara Lee of California, Andre Carson of Indiana, Jamie Raskin of Maryland, uh, all voted present, meaning we refuse to condemn anti-Semitism. We refuse to condemn the anti-Jew language and rhetoric that continues to come from uh, so many in the United States, including in this body. Nancy Pelosi, Benny Thompson, Dean Phillips just refused to vote at all. Pro-Hamas protests have been going on all over this country by the tablecloth wearers, and it has no bearing whatsoever. They don't bother, That doesn't bother the Democrats in the House one single bit. But when there are pro-Israel um, events, um, they do not want any, they offer no support to it whatsoever. We had the March for Israel in Washington, D.C. They offered no support whatsoever. As a matter of fact, they didn't even condemn the bus drivers, the anti-Semitic bus drivers who refused to go and pick up Jewish uh, uh, supporters uh, in the March for Israel at the airport at Dulles and take them to the National Mall. They refused to do it. They just all did a sick-in, kind of like a walkout, so they wouldn't have to, to bring more people there. Not a word from our Democrats right there in, uh, in Washington, D.C. at that time. So they have no concerns whatsoever with pro-Hamas protests, but they will not support whatsoever anything uh, that has to do with pro-Israel. So this resolution singled out chants of things like, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free because of what it is. It is an anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist message that says, from the Mediterranean, or excuse me, from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea, which is on either side of the nation of Israel, uh, Palestine shall be free, which means we will eliminate and erase Israel and its Jews and replace it with Palestine, and which doesn't exist, and the uh, fellow tablecloth wearers. It cited the killing of Paul Kessler by a pro-Palestinian protester in Los Angeles in a violent November 15th protest where pro-Palestinian demonstrators blocked entrances to the Democratic National Committee headquarters, which injured six cops. No condemnation of that from democrats none so a resolution was issued saying all you got to do is vote yay and you will be condemning that over a hundred of them couldn't do it the one republican who joined them in refusing to condemn this is a guy that i have had just about my fill of thomas massey used to be a strong conservative voice he is now a caricature of himself he is now a complete cartoon That's what Thomas Massey is. Thomas Massey is the lone Republican who said he does not support uh, a resolution um, uh, condemning anti-Semitism. In his words, Thomas Massey of Kentucky, because he said anti-Semitism is not the same thing as anti-Zionism. And, of course, anti-Zionism has to do with the establishment and the defense of an Israeli state. But he said that you can condemn the state of Israel without being an anti-Semitic Jew hater. 
Thomas Massey is parsing words. Thomas Massey has been very consistent in doing these things over the course of the last few weeks, and I'm done with that guy. And if any Republican is has any self-respect whatsoever, they will also be done with Thomas Massey. This cannot, this guy cannot be allowed to be a representative of and a spokesperson for the Republicans in Congress. It is, it is awful. So this is what happened yesterday, and while this vote was taking place. Jewish students at some of the elite universities in the United States, and their status at elite universities honestly shouldn't matter because you can be poor and be a Jew that is being harassed and facing death threats uh, in the United States, not just from a family of means that can afford to send you to Harvard or MIT or NYU and University of Pennsylvania, these Ivy League and elite academic institutions, but... This particular story is about those elite institutions. Jewish students attending four of the most prestigious universities recounted uh, yesterday gut-wrenching experiences that they have had with anti-Semitism on their campuses. School officers had spewed blood libels, and other, uh, another compared the environment of hatred to the time right before World War II. I mentioned a few moments ago, 1939, there's a reason. House Republicans featured these four students from Penn, Harvard, MIT, and uh, NYU before the Committee on Education and the Workforce. One Israeli student whose identity and personal information was sold online for a bounty has not left his dorm room in weeks out of fear due to the threats of death that he has, he has received. This was according to the president of MIT's Israel Alliance, Talia Khan. Talia Khan, while testifying, also cited a survey of Jews on campus that found 70% of them felt forced to hide their identities as Jews out of fear. I was forced to leave my study group for my doctoral exams halfway through the semester, she said, because my group members told me that the people at the Nova Music Festival deserved to die. That, of course, is what, part of what happened on October 7th in Israel. Deserved to die because they were partying on stolen land. That's a quote. Most shockingly, Khan said, a postdoctoral fellow at the school repeated claims that Jewish Israelis want to enslave the world in a global apartheid system and falsely claim that Israel harvests Palestinian organs. That's a direct quote as well. That's a variation of the slandering of Jews that dates all the way back to the Middle Ages. Do you understand where we are right now and why this continues to be the lead story in the United States? It better be, because never again is not going to mean never again when it's literally happening right in front of our eyes and American leaders, most of them, almost all of them Democrats, refuse to stand up to it. I mean, this is, this is beyond dangerous. This is one of the students that testified yesterday before the uh, Education and Workforce Committee. This is a student from the University of Pennsylvania uh, telling... Um, uh, testifying, I should say, against his university at Penn for telling students not to wear symbols of Judaism. Hide your identities. Don't wear symbols of Judaism if you want to avoid harassment. Listen to what he says. For the past three weeks inside Houston Hall, our student center, an anti-Semitic headquarters has been erected with signs spreading Hamas propaganda. The organizers, both Penn-affiliated and not, were initially asked to leave as they are trespassing on campus property. Well, three weeks later, they are still sleeping there, and countless Jewish students have been harassed. Yet the anti-Semitic dormitory remains. 
clearly both a disregard for school policies and permission to disregard them by a university unwilling to do anything. Not only are tensions palpable, but there have also been materialized actions taken to intimidate and harm students. A bomb threat against Hillel, a swastika spray painted, the Hillel and Chabad houses vandalized, a professor posting the armed wing of Hamas's logo on Facebook, a Jewish student accosted, Jews are Nazis, etched adjacent to Penn's Jewish fraternity house. Why doesn't the university hold the perpetrators of such acts accountable? It's a very good question. Uh, this particular student also said in his commentary that he refuses to allow this uh, this world to go back to 1939. He will not, and of course he cannot stop it, but he is, he is trying to unite and to rally people to understand that is exactly what we're facing here, and he's right. We are literally looking at 1939-style rhetoric against Jews. The United States Congress was asked to condemn that, and and over 100 members of of the Congress, almost all of them, all but one Democrat, refused. All of excuse me, all but one of them were Democrats. Only one Republican joined them in refusing to condemn. Now, having said that, I want to share this. This is part of the hearing before the Education and Workforce Committee that we're talking about. And what you're going to hear is uh, Representative Elise Stefanik questioning and talking to the presidents of three of these universities. I told you that they were represented by four students from four different universities, but the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn were there. And I want you to listen as they are asked a very direct question. Is it okay to call for the genocide of Jews. In your campus codes of conduct, is it okay to call for the genocide of Jews? It doesn't get much more blatant than this. How long would it take you to say, is it okay to, to, to answer the question, is it okay to call for the genocide of Jews? You would probably say the word no before, I mean, you could even take a breath. It would just come out, no, of course not. What are you kidding? No, it's not okay to call for the genocide of Jews. That's not what these college presidents said, though. Dr. Kornbluth, does M- at MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals not making public statements. Yes or no? Calling for the genocide of Jews does have, not constitute bullying and harassment? I have not heard calling for the genocide for Jews on our campus. But you've heard chants for intifada. I've heard chants, which can be anti-Semitic depending on the context, when calling for the elimination of the Jewish people. So those would not be according to the MIT's code of conduct or rules? That would be um, investigated of, as harassment, if pervasive and severe. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. 
So is your testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. Conduct meaning committing the act of genocide? The speech is not harassment? This is unacceptable, Ms. McGill. I'm going to give you one more opportunity for the world to see your answer. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's code of conduct when it comes to bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be harassment. The answer is yes. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? Targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of anti-Semitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When and it is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard code of conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It I wanted you to hear all three of them because I want you to understand where we are. If a sitting member of Congress were to ask any one of these university presidents, Madam President or Mr. President, is calling for the genocide of black people a violation of the code of conduct at your university? How long do you think they would take them to say, is that a violation? Of course it is. A violation of, of, of the code of conduct for intimidation and bullying and harassment to call for the elimination of black people? Of course it is. What, what's wrong with you? But when they ask the same exact question of Jewish people, is it a violation of your university's code of conduct to call for the genocide, the elimination, the killing of all Jewish people? They say, eh, you know, it's, it's, it depends on the context. It's, uh, you know, it's a little here, it's a little there. Uh, we got to kind of evaluate those on a case-by-case. The Jewish people are the only people, the only race, ethnicity, faith, that can possibly have to suffer all of this. You say the same thing about blacks, Hispanics, Asians, or dare I say, I don't know about if they would say that about whites, but you say, is it okay to call for the genocide of an entire race or ethnicity of people? The automatic answer is no, it's not okay, and yes, it's a violation of our code of conduct. But when you say it about Jews, it's, you know, I guess, let me think about that a little, little bit first. That is terrible. Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. 
All right, it is uh, 938. A little bit late coming back because we were a little bit late going out. I really needed that full monologue to uh, just give you the lay of the land of what's going on right now in Israel, specifically in the United States Congress, and the fact that we cannot even find a way to... uh... Seth, before I go to calls on this, and before I also talk about our border, what did you just say to me off the radio before we uh, right after we went into break? Uh, which part? Um, I, I don't know about this Pledge of Allegiance anymore. There you go. That that was it. Why? Uh, the the way that the hatred and everything that I'm seeing today is nothing like I've ever seen or experienced, and I, I just don't know that I live in a country that deserves that pledge anymore. Yeah. Um, thank you, Seth. Um, I, I, I just, you know, <clears throat> uh, my response to that my response to that off the air to Seth just a few minutes ago was, yeah, man, I know I feel the same way. I immediately regret saying that because I, it's obviously not the country. It is because the country is still what the country was when it was when it was founded. Um, it is still a glorious tribute to liberty and freedom and 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 uh, uh, the opportunity for all. Um, the country hasn't changed in that regard but some of the people right now tasked with leading it they are the ones i of course would never salute i would never pledge my allegiance to these individuals in fact are the ones that i will pledge my opposition to and i will lead as many different ways as i can with the power of a microphone and a transmitter uh and a stage or even a bullhorn or even just shouting i don't care as many different people if i can influence uh as possible that's that's what i am going to do in defense of those stars and stripes and in defense of the country that was founded what they are trying to do to it now and what the the amount of hatred and i get what seth said too he told me off the air it's just hard to come to the realization that this much hatred exists for one group of people in the united states and and it makes him wonder you know is the united states you know, worth, uh, you know, trying to save given to where it is. And of course, the answer to that is yes, it is. But I do get his reticence to, you know, saying, uh, this is still the greatest country on earth when it's being led into this type of a, uh, you know, a situation where, where, where innocent people based simply on their ethnicity as ethnic Jews or their faith as religious Jews can be targeted for such horrific treatment in you know the worst that we've seen since they tried to kill them all the literal genocide of them in 1939 through 1945 the reality is we are in a worse place now or the worst place that we have been in since that year since that time since that period since the holocaust and yeah it is it's it's alarming to hear people who know that still saying nope nope Going to vote present, going to vote no on condemning the anti-Semitism that led to that and is leading to so much of this. It is, it is a very dangerous thing, and what really, really bothers me. And I, look, I, I I know a lot of Jewish people. Uh, I have a lot of Jewish friends, quite frankly, and that does not color my view of this. If these were people of a different race, ethnicity, or faith. And, and the entire world were coming down on them and condemning them and not condemning those who wish for the genocide of them, I would be just as outraged because it cannot happen in, in, in what's supposed to be a free country and a free world. It cannot be allowed. But as I said, if the, if the presidents of these major universities that we were just listening to were asked, is it against your university's code of conduct to call for the genocide of black people? I mean, they would immediately say, well, duh, of course, yes. 
But when they say, when they are asked, is it, is it against your university's code of conduct or a violation of your university's code of conduct to call for the genocide of Jews, they equivocate and they hem and they haw say, well, if the speech, you know, um, you know, rises up to conduct, and at least the said, what, what does that mean? Unless genocide actually takes place, then you won't find it to be a violation of your code of conduct? Code of conduct, by the way, for the, for the, you know, the, the, supposed smartest people on the planet, the presidents of MIT and Harvard and the University of Pennsylvania, for the supposed smartest people uh, in our country, uh, they're pretty freaking stupid if they actually are taking the word conduct and saying that doesn't include speech. Well, if speech rises to the level of conduct, well, then, yes, that would be intimidation and harassment, and that would be a violation. What the hell are you talking about? Conduct includes speech. How you conduct yourself does indeed include what you say, the type of of insightful language you use, inciting of of violence and of attacks on people for their for their race or for their religion or their ethnicity. That is part of conduct. So the question was: Can is is calling for the genocide of a group of people based on their ethnicity or their faith? Is that a violation of your code of conduct for them to say, well, if that speech rises to the level of conduct, it's just so beyond stupid, it's hard to quantify. And I mean, honestly, if you don't know what conduct is, look it up. Speech is included in codes of conduct. There is no place for hate speech, but hate speech is protected. Now, I want to be very clear about this. This is another part of the conversation I had off the air <clears throat> before I go back or go to the phones. And if you're on hold, stay there. If you're not on hold, you should be. Get there. Hate speech needs to be protected in the United States because it's part of the First Amendment. Now, what do I mean? What I mean is if you outlaw hate speech and say that's not covered by the First Amendment to the Constitution, you now silence everyone, everyone, because it will be up to the ear of the beholder, the person listening to a, a statement to decide whether or not it's hate, whether or not that's hateful. That's hate speech. That's not protected. You can't say that. Do you want to live in that world? Because if that was the world, Riley Gaines would be silenced because she says that men should not compete against women in sports because of the damage it does to the competitive uh, nature of it for girls and women, and it's unfair, the left says she is being anti-trans and thus being hateful. That's hate speech to say men shouldn't be able to swim against women or compete against women. I don't want to live in a world where hate speech is determined by the person listening to the speech and saying, I think that's hateful. You are, you are, you are transphobic and you are hateful of trans people. Therefore, you, you must be silenced. Do you want to live in that world? No, I don't. Hate speech must be allowed even if it is vile, provided it does not rise to the level of calling for an incitement to action. Here's what I mean. These pathetic wretches on the campuses of Harvard and yet et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, can say, I hate Jews all they want. And it would be and should be protected by the First Amendment to the Constitution. What they cannot say, however, is, I am calling for the death of all Jews. Now we're not into hate speech. 
Now we are into intimidation and harassment, which are violations of that code of conduct. If you say, from the river to the sea, Palestine shall be free, you are literally calling for the end and the elimination of Israel and every Jew within its borders. That's different. That's different than just saying, I don't like Jews, I hate Jews. A white supremacist, neo-Nazi piece of KKK trash can say, I hate black people, and it's protected. Just like Louis Farrakhan can say he hates all white people and calls them white devils. That's protected. But if either one of those individuals were to say, I want somebody to kill all the white people, I want to kill all the black people, I want to kill all of the Jewish people, I want to, whatever. When you start saying that, and, you're, and, and especially if you're calling for others to do it as well, you're inciting violent acts, now, now that's a different thing than just quote-unquote hate speech. Hate speech is protected. Speech that incites violence and encourages people to visit violence upon others, that is not. I don't know why it takes a talk show host to speak something that is so commonsensical and clear to the presidents of the elite Ivy League institutions who don't understand what the word conduct means and what speech's role in it is. But here we sit. Uh, okay, TJ is in Cleveland first. Hi, TJ, go ahead. Yeah, hi, Bob. You know, when I hear... You know, these college kids talking about the uh, Israel is living on stolen Palestinian land. And I'm sitting there thinking, their university that they're sitting on is stolen Indian land. Now, they don't have any problems with that kind of stuff. You know, but then they're going to, you know, like with the Israelis. I remember some liberal guy uh, back a couple years ago, and he's telling me what was terrible, what we did to the American Indians. And I told him, I said, look, I never did anything to them, but what was so bad that we did? He said, we stole their land. I says, okay, we stole their land. I says, where do you live? He says, Strongsville. I says, do you rent or do you own your home? He says, well, I own my home. I says, well, why don't you take your home that's sitting on stolen Indian land, find an Indian family, and give them their property back? I mean, I just don't understand this. This whole country is sitting on stolen Indian land, but they don't have a problem with that well here's the thing uh and and of course you're right and and the response and thank you for the call tj the response to that though should be because some people actually do that some of these same people call the u.s colonizer colonizers which is why indigenous people um kind of became part of the new um you know identity politics along with blacks and Hispanics and, and, and gays and so on and so forth, that indigenous people were because, well, this was their land first. They were indigenous to this nation, so they should be given special treatment and considerations. They were a more protected class because we stole their land. We occupied, we colonized, and so on and so forth is what their, what their, their statement usually is. And my response to that, twofold, number one, they should understand and appreciate it, that the fact that almost all land in the world has been fought for and won. Literally, almost all of the developed land in the world has been fought for. People either came onto land that was already being occupied and took it over, or came onto land that was occupied uh, and just basically improved upon it, you know, and invited the others to stay like we did here, which is why we have reservations, which are completely self-governed. Um... You know, or they fought and they killed everybody who was on it. And, and, and that's literally all around the world. 
that, that the land has been fought for. That's number one. Number two, specific to Native Americans, when people, you know, with the point that TJ was just making, the idea that the Native Americans were not engaged in the exact same conduct, there's that word, in the exact same conduct as, as what the, um, you know, the, the American, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the pilgrims and the colonizers, if you will, who came over here and, and settled and decided North America was going to be theirs, um, it, it was no different what they, than what they were doing themselves. If you look at history, if you look at all of the different warring tribes of Native Americans, as we call them, or Indians more euphemistically, all of the different tribes fought one another for land. They killed one another. They enslaved one another. Hell, they cannibalized one another in order to take what resources other tribes had. People like to think that they romanticize, you know, that the Native American experience here before the, the uh, uh, advent of, of white colonialism. People like to think that it was all just, you know, being one with nature and the Native American communities all got along with one another and they lived off of the land and they hunted their buffalo and they, you know, grew their corn and they did this, that, and the other, whatever. Uh, no, no, not at all. Anytime there have been factions or tribes or or populations of people coming into uh, contact with other populations of people, if there was, in the name of survival, an opportunity to take some of their resources, which means their land, fighting for land near water, near rivers for survival, fighting land that is more fertile, fighting for land that is more, they fought for it. And when one took, it, took the land over from the other, they didn't say, okay, we should give it back. It's too bad, you lost. To the winner, to the victor, go the spoils kind of a thing. So in the United States, no, no, we're not going to be giving land back to the Native Americans. And I understand the point that you meant when you talk to your Strongsville friend or whatever, but they need to understand what real history is. Native Americans did not, uh, you know, uh, the indigenous peoples, if you will, did not get treated any differently than they treated one another. Land is fought for. Now, in the case of Israel, it is a little bit different only because of the nature of the history of that region, as the history has been repeated again and again and again and again. I'm not going to go through the lesson again here, but literally that land has been op- occupied by Israel, Israelis, Israeli Jews since 1200 B- B.C., literally 1200 years before Christ. It's chronicled. It's documented. And they never gave up that land. Uh, there, there have been Jews living on that land literally since that time. Now, some places have come in and tried to appropriate that land, again, in the same way that I just described, but they never left it. And the fact that it was recognized as always being theirs back in 1947 and 1948 does not change that fact. It just, it just, it just legitimized it. Yes, this is Israel. It has always been Israel. It has always been home to Israeli Jews, and we are now going to recognize it as such, especially since uh, the world uh, was almost rid of Jews by Hitler's uh, war machine. And that's why, of course, it was it was recognized again. So I'm I'm sorry to sit here and do all the history stuff, but it's important. Rachel is uh, next in Cleveland. Hi, Rachel. Go right ahead. Hi. Good morning, Bob. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. Um. So I wanted to share a personal story. Unfortunately, uh, this type of exception for anti-Semitism is all too familiar for many Jews. Now, like I said before, I'm a grandchild of Holocaust survivors. Um, I went, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio. I grew up, you know, a very secular Jew. I was one of four Jewish people in my high school. 
Um, I was captain of the gymnastics team. I was a cheerleader. I was on the you know, athletic leadership boards, uh, mm-hmm. scholarship leadership boards. Um, so in my mind, I was like any other student. Um, now, because my high school was so big, we had one main principal and four uh, vice principal. So I had a very, very good relationship with my African-American principal. And I had a lot of African-American, both teammates and classmates and close friends. Um, and I stood up for them when there was outright you know, racism towards them, which, it, it, as I should, because it's not okay. Um, but throughout high school, I would get people at parties would, you know, do the Hitler sign to me or the Nazi sign to me. I can't, there's nothing I could do it wasn't on school grounds. People will call me saying this is, you know, the Nazis or Hitler were coming for you. Couldn't do anything about it. But when it happened on school campus, uh, we had a big little program where uh, before a gymnastics meet, our person would put a sign on our locker, you know, in support, like, yay, you're going to do well. I got to school. The K word was written wow. on that sign. Wow. I went to, I went to my African-American um vice principal who I was who who was like a second mother to me um and that was the day our relationship unfortunately ended and I was crying and I was expecting her to sympathize with me and she didn't she said you know there's nothing I could do and I said what do you mean this is on this is unacceptable we need to look at the cameras we need to find out who did it this is not okay why should I feel threatened and she she refused to do anything about it um, and I got very angry and I looked at her and I said, if this was a different word against black people, which w- would be equally not okay, mm-hmm. we would be having a different conversation. Mm-hmm. And that was the day our relationship ended. And that was the day that I realized that what wow. my grandparents had told me all along, there is a double standard for Jewish people and it's not right. It's something that I will never be able to understand. And I and and Rachel, I'm so sorry you had to go through all that. And I'm so glad though that you called to share it, so you're bearing witness to what we're talking about. Thank you for that call. But it is uh, it is something that is beyond me. I, I it, maybe there's an element to it I can't understand. I'm thick headed. I don't know. Um, but but you're right. There is no other race, ethnicity, identification group, or whatever you want to call it, whether they be Asian or, or European or, uh, or, or Native or, or, or African, or it doesn't matter. No other group has to deal with this kind of thing. There's an exception that's carved out for Jews, and uh, I think the uh, measure of our nation will be how we react to and how we decide to address that exception, how we uh, choose to stand up for those who are who are in the crosshairs of so many hateful people. And that's why I do what I do on this situation. All right, we're going to get a time out here. Jack Windsor is going to join us after the top of the hour. We've got a lot to do. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Darkness. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420. The answer is your host, Bob France. Already then, uh, hour number two is underway now at eight minutes past 10 o'clock. That was a pretty um, intense first hour, and it should be. If you can't get fired up, and, uh, and, and, and I mean seriously, be very, very fired up in the form of anger, 
uh, and and concern for what is being done to Jews in this uh, country and uh, the 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 language of the leadership from the university presidents refusing to just outright condemn anti-Semitism and the call for genocide against a, a single group of people. Uh, and then, of course, there's our congressional leaders, over 100 of whom refused to vote for a resolution in the House yesterday um, condemning anti-Semitism. All of them Democrats, with the exception of Thomas Massey of, of Kentucky, who I think it's time for him to go. You, you can't get fired up about this stuff. Um especially since you have literally some of the Jewish students who know their history testifying before that congressional committee that they do not want this to turn into 1939 again. They didn't live through 1939, neither did I, but they have studied it and they can see the parallels between then and now. That's the reality of this. So it was intense. We'll pick it up again in a bit. 216 Equally intense, quite frankly, is the fight to protect American sovereignty the Democrats are literally holding hostage the protection of the United States people and our land from illegal alien invasion if we don't give bribe money to Volodymyr Zelensky. And that is the fact. That is literally what they are saying. You don't get to secure the American southern border in any meaningful way whatsoever unless we get to send Zelensky more money, billions more dollars, to the... Uh, Leader of a corrupt nation that is in bed with the Bidens and has been providing them with uh, with payments and all kinds of other favors uh, for many, many years, going back all the way to Joe Biden's term as vice president, uh, terms as vice president under Barack Obama. So we're going to get into all of those things. But let's go local now. Let's talk about what's going on in the state of Ohio. And let's welcome the founder and the editor in chief of the um, Ohio Press Network, Jack Windsor, back to our program for a little conversation on this stuff. Jack, good morning. How are you, bud? Uh, Bob, I'm super fantastic. Thank you for having me this morning. You got it. So what's going on with weed in the state of Ohio now? We all know that issue two passed. You've been writing about this quite a bit, not just in the Ohio Press Network, but um, in your socials. You've been writing about this because there are there is movement afoot in various locations within the state of Ohio, including in the General Assembly, to find some way to regulate or minimize um what was what was decided upon with issue two as being the uh, legalization, full-on legalization of recreational marijuana in this state. What can you tell us? Well, what I can tell you is the proponents of no government involvement in the sale and use of weed didn't read issue two. Uh, issue two was a 51-page proposal, and one of the things that it did was it created a, a cannabis board. So in that issue was the permission to create government oversight and regulation, which, by the way, should happen, just like with the Ohio uh, Liquor Commission or control. Right. Uh, so it, it, it is a substance, it is a drug, and it does control. So uh, today and tomorrow, I think we will learn a lot more. The state Senate is, is going to be trying to hash some things out. And really, the crux of it is how much should the state collect from tax and you know, the, the, the strength of the marijuana, uh, that, that's a conversation that I get made fun of a lot. I don't smoke weed, so I guess that makes me a dumb person. But uh, my understanding is the THC levels uh, that are permitted are extremely high. And I use the example that uh, weed was, say, 1, 1% to 5% levels of THC at Woodstock. The minimum level of THC, per what I've read, 
in issue two's uh, proposal is 35 percent. That's extremely high. And we know now that the Depart- or, uh, Drug Enforcement Agency has already sounded the alarm that China has been producing this type of concentrated marijuana uh, for well over a decade now and distributing it, and that it has a pretty adverse effect on the population. So I think we're going to figure some of those things out in the next couple of days. Uh, but of course, in the press and, and members of the Democratic Party are, are trying to make people believe that, well, the Republicans just don't want to hear your voice. They're going to try to tinker with issue two now. Well, Republicans don't, quite frankly, because we are disgusted by potheads and uh, and burnouts. Uh, quite frankly, it's a dangerous thing, and especially because of what you just said. This is not the weed that your parents or, or other people's parents smoked when they went to Grateful Dead concerts in the 1960s and 70s. This is very, very different. 2%, 3% THC compared to 35% THC. I walked into a marathon gas station not to buy gas. Like everybody else, I pay at the pump, but I had to go in there and get some windshield wiper fluid. Jack, I walked into that place, and I almost immediately got a contact buzz. It was just, and you can tell the difference because of the of the skunk smell of this modern high 35% plus THC weed. Um, I was, and people can go ahead and call me a nerd if you want, but when I was in college, my senior year, I was an RA. So I was the, the narc, you know, and I didn't, I didn't mess with too many people unless they were being really egregious. But I learned to detect the smell of marijuana from various rooms. I knew who my potheads were on my floor. Uh, and, uh, you know, and again, I didn't bother them too much if they weren't bothering anybody else. But that smell was very, very different than the skunkweed yes. smell of the super high potency stuff. And that's all there is now. You walk in and you can't get away from it, Jack. And it is dangerous. And it's dangerous because this is going to be in, in, you know, affecting more and more kids. The, every single state that has passed legalized recreational marijuana has seen a massive spike in legalized, or not legalized, it's illegal for under 18, but a massive spike in teens underage yeah. using it because it's, it's more pervasive. It's in more places. It's much easier to obtain uh, from people who go and buy it from the dispensary and then leave it laying around and then the kids get it. So it is, it is extremely dangerous. And I don't, I can't imagine why people are frustrated or excuse Excuse me. Why the uh, the left that passed this thing are angry with uh, Republicans who are uh, who are trying to regulate this in some way to minimize the damage that can be done? Yeah, it, I've stopped trying to figure out the left, Bob. And by the way, I don't try to paint myself as some super conservative, but uh, having dialogue with anyone on the left is is maddening. And all I can surmise is this: uh, whatever feels good in the moment. Uh, to promote or advance their agenda is what they're going to go with. There's no logic. There's no, uh, you know, continuity or moral standard that they argue from. So I guess I shouldn't be surprised that they want everybody doped up and high. Well, here's uh, just since you brought up, the, you know, the people on the left and, and, you know, having arguments with them. Here's your friends at the Ohio Capitol Journal. I want to read a couple <laughs> of I want to read a couple of lines here for you for you. Uh, on board is the opposite of what Senate Republicans have in mind. Before this week, House Bill 86 was a non-controversial bill tweaking state liquor laws. It passed the House 85 to 6. On Monday, with very little notice, it became the vehicle for the Senate GOP's planned demolition of Issue 2, as they write this. Among the changes they plan on approving this week are a bunch sure to keep Ohioans flocking to Michigan and navigating Ohio's black market. Ooh. Issue 2 approved home growing. 
HB 86 eliminates it all. Zero plants, they write. I don't know if this is true. I'm just telling you what the Capital Journal is writing. Issue two established limits of 35% THC for plant product and 90% for extracts. Under HB 86, those numbers are chopped to 25% and 50% respectively. HB 86 says you can drive with marijuana, but only if it's in your trunk in its original unopened packaging. So from the dispensary to your first trip home. Um, you want to respond to that? Yeah, I'll give you two responses. Anything that the Ohio Capital Journal publishes, there should be a disclaimer. That their seed capital came from a group called Arabella Advisors. When you dive into Arabella Advisors, you see funds like the 1630 Fund, the Hopewell Fund, and other such funds that are uh, funded by George Soros, Hans-Jörg Viss. These are the billionaires who fund the radical left. So when the Ohio Capital Journal pretends to be a news outlet, I have to ring the bell on that. So that's number one. Number two, um, you know, there's, <laughs> it, it's, I will say this. It's hard to collect a tax on somebody growing a, a marijuana plant. And so I think it would be silly to act as if it's 100% about safety. I think part of it is about taxation. But I do believe part of it is about safety. Um, you know, if, if you're going to have a regulated drug and you're going to allow it to be sold, then um, that's entirely different than allowing somebody to produce essentially their own marijuana. You have no clue. Um, what you're getting and whether it's being sold. And to me, if and, and maybe they would spell this out in the law, uh, to me, growing it at home actually exacerbates the black market, doesn't it? I mean, if, if THC levels have to be a certain level, if, if they have to be regulated and taxed, and you're, and, and you're saying at one part of the article, well, it's, it's going to promote black market use. But in the same article, you're, what, promoting the idea that this should be grown at home? That's the epitome of, of growing the black market. So, yeah, I, I again, the Ohio Capital Journal. Well, these people are so uh, these these people are so completely blinded by their own you know uh, agenda here to understand that people are going to use the black market anyway. You think people are going to want to pay the upcharge? It's going to be a, a, a taxed product at the dispensaries, and if people yep. can grow just as strong of weed on their own or import it like they have always done or buy it from suppliers and so on and so, forth, people are going to if. The, the black market is going to undercut the cost of the dispensaries every time, and then nobody's going to be able to know whether it was legally obtained or whether it was obtained on the black market, and it's going to just get more and more people high, and again, more and more people driving high as well, which is all verifiable and provable by looking at the other states that have uh, uh, that have done this already. Yeah, it is, and it's really interesting. We probably published an article last week where uh, we quoted a, a DEA agent uh, who has said uh, China has been doing this for a decade. And look, they call it what it is. When, when this high level of THC, when this potent pot is produced, it poisons the population. And, and I guess that's the other question I would ask. Why do you want to poison the population? I, I, I guess I just don't get that. You know, two years ago, we were crying foul because somebody wouldn't wear a mask because somebody might get sick. But now we want people to smoke marijuana with 35% THC. Again, I just, I, I, I can't make sense out of it, Bob. No, neither can I. Uh, Jack, let's pivot. Um, you and I are yep. both big fans of Riley Gaines. We both spoke to her last week, and you and I talked about her last week. Now she was before uh, the Senate, ed, uh, let's see, Education and Workforce Committee, I think it was yesterday. And Riley Gaines had herself a moment as the ranking member, Democrat uh, Summer Lee, chastised her for daring to support women in sports and and girls and their opportunities in sports chastised her by calling her a transphobe saying she is transphobic 
Riley, Ga- Riley Gaines did not suffer that lightly. Riley Gaines decided, okay, well, if supporting women, real women, actual women, is what you call transphobic, then, well, I'll just let her, I'll let her repeat it. Come on. Sorry, we're having a little bit of a computer glitch here, but I will get this for you, I promise, because I like hearing her put people in their place. One more time here. And ranking member Lee, if my testimony makes me transphobic, then I believe your opening monologue makes you a misogynist. Thank you. <laughs> I know, thank you, you need um, to see. Um, I'm going to let I'm going to let this play out here for a second. You need to see the look on Summer Lee's face, Jack. You probably have already seen it when she said you are misogynistic. My name is Sarah Partial. Now watch watch what happens. Legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation, as a former varsity athlete, the mother of a girls varsity athlete. Now the next the next witness is testifying here, as you can hear. But listen, former senior counsel for civil rights at the Department of Education. I have, as the saying goes, uh, Madam Chair. Excuse me. I move to have uh, the gentlewoman's words taken down. The committee will suspend. She just could not, Jack. The look on her face, she's doing up there. She just called me misogynistic. She had just so much hatred and rage on her face. She couldn't let the next witness talk without jumping in. And then she jumped in as they considered this to take down Riley. Madam Chair, she's engaging in personalities. She's engaging in personalities. Now, that's some vernacular. Can I just ask how it's fair to be called transphobic? There's a thing. I would say men disguising themselves as women are engaging in personalities. Order. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Order, order. Let's let's get a ruling. The chair. And I'll uh, I'll cut it short there to let you know. Um, no, Summer Lee's request to take Riley Gaines' words calling her misogynist down, they were not stricken from the record. Riley Gaines' words stand as they should because as you heard the other uh, uh, witness there, Jack, testifying and saying, well, um, I would say a man pretending to be a woman is engaging in personalities. Um, this is uh, This is extraordinarily important, what Riley Gaines and others are doing. Are you encouraged by the fact that they're getting hearings in front of state assemblies like ours and uh, obviously in front of the uh, House committees in in D.C.? I am encouraged by the fact that they are getting attention. Uh, As the father of uh, two school-aged girls, yes, I I think it's important that we make sure people understand what's going on. And listen, uh, words have power, Bob, and it, it always frustrates me that Someone on the left. I mean, you know, if you have some, if you have someone on your Christmas list list that's, that's a Democrat or a, a progressive, get them a label maker because <laughs> these guys just love labels. And but this is what they do, right? They stick a label on you, and if somebody's not discerning or really not paying attention, then sometimes it works, and they go, "Oh, well, that Riley Gaines, she's you know, she's just a transphobe." No, Riley Gaines is not a transphobe, and I'm glad that this is really starting to play out because what you're seeing is that what these, what these people are saying just isn't true. Riley Gaines believes, I listened to part of her testimony, that people should engage in sports, all, all people, because of the, the, the qualities that you develop playing sports. And she says that. She's very thoughtful. She's very articulate about what she's saying. She's saying, look, if you want to be, and I'm not going to call him a trans athlete, if, if a boy wants to pretend to be a girl and, and he wants to compete, great. Just don't do it against women. And... I think it's important that people hear that. I think it's important that people see someone like Riley Gaines, who 
is one of the most decorated swimmers at the University of Kentucky in their history, who ties William Thomas, a.k.a. Leah Thomas, who got the trophy, got the attention uh, at the NCAA championships. And um, because it's Jack, 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 I'm under- glad you said that part. Let me interrupt you for a second because I want to play <clears throat> this because I know you're yeah. going to want to react to this. When you mentioned that she tied Leah Thomas and uh, in the whole nine yards, I want you to listen to this National Women's Law Center president who also testified at this very same hearing and said this. And success in school sports depends on a whole range of factors, including how hard you work and coaching and access to really good resources and facilities. And trans students participate in sports for the same reason as their kids, because it is fun, because it creates belonging and community, because it teaches so much about persistence and leadership and and discipline, unless they learn to lose gracefully, hopefully. She just threw shade at Riley Gaines and said she doesn't know how to lose gracefully to a biological man who's a foot taller than her and, and much bigger and stronger than her. She said, learn to lose gracefully, woman. Well, first of all, again, they, they struggle with facts. Riley Gaines didn't lose to William Thomas. Riley Gaines tied William Thomas. And by the way, he was 426 as a male and fifth as a female. So we have to stop pretending that, well, because here's the straw man argument, right? Well, it doesn't happen that often, and it really isn't hurting anyone. Okay, well, if somebody misses out on an opportunity to be an NCAA champion, uh, fifth place, fourth place, whatever, uh, that that person is, is losing out on opportunities. You know, there are spoils that come with that type of victory. But let's let's look at MMA. I mean, we, we know that there was a male pretending to be a female who crushed the skull of another female athlete. So we don't have to look very far down the line to see, well, one, it is happening, and two, it is hurting women. And so it, it, it's, it's not about losing gracefully. Um, it's, it's about calling it what it is. And the reality is women are different than men, and they should compete in different ways. They, they, right. Men should compete with men, and women should compete with women unless you sign up for a co-ed softball league maybe but when we're talking about scholarship athletes it's different and it has to be treated different and by the way title nine was created uh to to hinge on the reality that there are two sexes there are males and females and and females deserve the protection females deserve the opportunity and bob no one's saying that somebody can't pretend to be an opposite sex or even do that and want to play sports but actions have consequences if you want to be a, a girl, pretend to be a girl, you can play sports. You just can't do it on the certified women's team. Like, you know, we have to stop with I can do whatever I want and have zero consequences for my actions. That's just, that's just not how the world works. Yeah. Well, it's not supposed to be anyway, but you're exactly right. Jack, let me uh, get to the last one quickly here because we're a little short on time. But speaking of losing gracefully, Florida State University, undefeated conference champion, Alabama, once defeated, conference champion, who just beat the number one team in the country, who was a two-time defending champion, both up for the final playoff spot. The committee decided Alabama was better. Uh, is Florida State losing gracefully, even though they didn't lose on the field? What, what's your take? Did the committee get it right? Well, no, I don't think the committee got it right. Um, and, and people will argue with me all day long about that. And the argument is basically twofold. Well, one, they don't have their quarterback. 
And if you put him in the playoffs, essentially you're, you're wasting a spot. I point back to the Ohio State Buckeyes uh, in 2000, what was it, 2014, 2013. Uh, they lacked their first and second string quarterback. They, they won the whole thing with their third string quarterback. Um, but at the end of the day, Florida State did what it needed to do. It won all of its games, won a conference championship, and records should matter. Great that Alabama won a conference championship. They lost the game. It should have a consequence, and I think Florida State's getting screwed. We're going to fight on this one. I don't think they are. I think it matters. I think the committee does, the committee did not want another TCU that only got in there because they were undefeated, but they were not one of the four best teams. They were, you know, what it comes down to, Jack, and and a lot of people have talked about this. It comes down to best season, thus making you most deserving, or best team when it's time to start the playoffs. Um, yes, a thirteen and zero season is better than a twelve and one season. There's no doubt about it. But are you the, are you one of the four best teams at the time of the playoffs? And the playoff games have sucked so badly because teams that aren't one of the four best get in and they get boat raced by four touchdowns. And the committee didn't want to see that again. Let me. I'll end by saying this: I see your vantage point, but. I watched Trevor Lawrence the other night. He got injured, sprained his ankle. Uh, could you imagine if the NFL stepped in, and we're not in the playoffs yet, but they said, hey, um, yes, the Jaguars are going to make the playoffs, so we're going to hold them out because Trevor no, Lawrence. That, 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 that's a bad example, but, but I will ask you this, though, since you brought up the Jaguars and Trevor Lawrence. Is the Jaguars' success as one of the very top teams, I think if they uh, had won against Cincinnati on Monday, they'd be the top seed in the uh, AFC right now. Are they not living proof that Urban Meyer is the worst football coach in the history of the <laughs> National Football League? They were what, what were they one in thirteen or something with Urban before Urban got fired and just had no respect for many players. I mean, they were a laughing stock. Is he the worst head coach for one season in the history of the league? Boy, I have to think through that. There have been some really bad ones, and it's always it's interesting, right? College and, and pro level sports are two different things. You can't coach the same way. Right. And Urban Meyer was proof of that. So, he yeah, didn't know that. <laughs> he did not understand that. And by the way, Hugh Jackson went 0-16 with the Browns. He was a winless team, but I still think Urban was worse because if you look at as soon as Urban left, look at what they became in like the blink of an yeah. eye. So that, that lets yeah. you know. Jack Windsor, uh, follow him online at Jack Windsor, and also make sure you uh, subscribe to the Ohio Press Network at the... Giving you reason in the age of unreason. Always right radio with Bob France and the answer. All right. We continue now at 1038. Thanks to Jack Windsor. Great conversation there. I welcome you back now at 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Hey, Seth. Yes. You there, you there, Seth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here. See, Norman Lear died. I did see that. I thought he was. Norman Lear was born 101 years ago. Wow. 101 years ago before his his passing. He's a very lucky man. You want to know why? Why is that? Because if he had been born much later than that, there is not a chance in hell he would have had a career. That is very true. There is not a chance that Norman Lear, if he was born, so let's see, he died at 101, so that means he was born in 1922. If he had been born, let's say, in 1952 and tried to create at the time that he did, or maybe even 62 or 72, whatever you get my point, if it was, if it was anywhere near today's um, culture and entertainment vehicle, and Norman, Norman Lear tried to create All in the Family, 
or the Jeffersons or many of the other just completely revolutionary new types of, of comedy, you know, sitcom entertainment, which, by the way, it, what's really interesting about it, Archie Bunker was on such an extraordinarily much higher percentage of homes um, back then than he would be today anyway, even if even if he was allowed to be on any platform or any device or anything today. Because, of course, back then there were only the three major broadcast networks. That was it. So everybody, every television in America was tuned into one of those three. And the most popular ones, of course, were viewed by, you know, 75, 80% of the people watching television today with so many different options and choices and streams and platforms and podcasts and to cable and, and on and on down the line. Even if he was around, uh, you know, it would be, it would be much less visible and much less, you know, viewed and thus have much less of an impact on society and culture, but they would still have canceled it anyway. Can you imagine any of the jokes? Uh, that that were written into those scripts for Archie Bunker, which you know he was made, of course, to look like the racist, idiot, bumbling, you know, middle class to lower middle class, you know, working stiff white guy. Uh, they would like that. They probably would be fine with that portraying a a, a middle class white guy as a racist and an idiot and uh, you know a, a homophobe and any of the other things that were said there. They would like the portrayal of him in such a way because that's how they want people to view white males straight white males is like that but um but the things that he said wouldn't have been allowed to be on air uh, there's 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 just no chance Sanford and Son Good Times I mean all those shows would have been yeah, canceled good, yeah. today yeah I mean think about that I mean and and you know what's what's really telling about it is he did make those shows when you and I were growing up he did and put those shows on television, and we watched them, and we absorbed them, and I could probably quote you lines from uh, you know, a few dozen different episodes of All in the Family and the Jeffersons. Less so good times, uh, but some, and what else did you say? Um, Sanford and Son. Uh, Sanford, oh, and Sanford, crying out loud, Sanford and Son. I, dozens of those, too. <laughs> yeah. uh, he put those on television, and we watched them, and you know what? We, didn't, we weren't harmed. We, we didn't grow up terrified because our safe spaces had been invaded by offensive language and jokes about people based on their ethnicity, their race, or anything else. Jokes were, were back then classified as, you know, jokes, and they were accepted as such. And, and it, didn't, it didn't, you know, create post-traumatic stress where people needed to go to their doctors and get put on SSRIs because their anxiety is so high. Did you hear what that man said? Did you hear what he said? I mean, today, this would send millions into therapy. Am I wrong, Seth? No, you're absolutely right. <laughs> and I never thought of anything racist when I watched those kind of shows. I mean, I, you knew Archie was just a caricature, but I never thought of Sanford and Sons and, oh, that's the way black people are. I never thought of that kind of thing. Today, everybody's hypersensitive, and it would destroy television. Well, you know, the, 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 the part about it is, is, is back then there was a sense of humor, and we could poke fun at modern contemporary um, mores, if you will, um, where, yes, there was division between, you remember, in 19, I don't know when, when All in the Family debuted, somewhere in 19, early 1970s, I, I, I would imagine, right? Do, do you know when? I'm looking right now. When it when it debuted, seventy one, seventy one. There you go. 
Okay. So when when All in the Family debuted, you know, we were only in 1971, what, seven years from the passage of the Civil Rights Act. So, yeah, you know, there was still some rawness between black and white relationships then, but they knew how to take those modern uh, conditions and laugh at them and mock them and make you know, George Jefferson looked just as foolish for disliking white Tom Willis, who was married to black Helen Willis, their friends and, and, and neighbors in the apartments there, and hating Archie Bunker and, and calling him honky and talking about whitey. They made George Jefferson look just as ridiculous as they made Archie Bunker look as he talked about black people. Um and and gay people and so forth because we they were able to just do this mock it laugh at it and then say okay now let's just let's get 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 on with our lives now it would be the subject of freaking forums on college campuses there would be classes about it about how much damaging how damaging it is to portray people in such ways um, not how they portray George and Archie but how George and Archie portray other people portrayed people, like I said, who are of different races and so forth. But America knew how to look at that and laugh at that and not be traumatized by that. And today we have created such, and I I hate to overuse the word snowflake, but we've created such a nation of freaking weak, pansified people where we're just like, everything breaks us down and puts us into a place where I, I don't feel safe. I don't feel safe. And they do that. You see it all over TikTok. You see it all over Instagram. You see it all over the Internet. Everybody's screaming about somebody said something to me that made me feel unsafe. And even if it's an entertainment vehicle. I mean, I would love for Gen Z, who, which is being raised to be the weakest-willed, softest generation of people, particularly men, in, in the history of American history, I would love for Archie Bunker to be on in 75% of the televisions uh, uh, t- uh, in the homes on television. Street. And that's all they get. They don't get their internet. They don't get their TikTok. They don't get just TV. And Archie Bunker came in today. And George Jefferson and Fred Sanford. And, and, and those guys all came in today. I would love to watch the meltdown of the, of the, of the modern-day Gen Z and millennial American left. They would... They wouldn't survive. They would not survive. They might actually, if 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 those shows were on today, they might actually take a take a, uh, 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 take themselves up on their own threats. Is what I'm trying to say to leave the country. You know, if Donald Trump wins, I'm moving to Canada. Okay. If Archie Bunker's on, I, I'm moving to Canada. They they might actually go. They might actually go because they would be so traumatized by it. And I know this is off the off the uh, subject, but. By the way, isn't it hilarious how every time they say if Trump wins or if something happens to move into Canada, you notice how none of the left ever, 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 ever says, I'm moving to Mexico? They always want to go north. They always want to go up to what? The great white north. And you can use that as a double entendre. I meant it both ways. They want to go up to the great white north of Canada they never go down to the brown country of Mexico. Yet they scream that anybody who wants to build a border wall to keep out Mexicans, which of course is so not the case. It's about keeping out a ton of people from around the globe. But uh, they call us 
racist if we don't want to let the Mexican population and the Central American population up here through our border illegally. But whenever they threaten to leave the country, are they going down there to live with the people that they say they're so comfortable with? Not a chance. They're going up to the great white north. I just think that's worth pointing out. AC is in Cleveland. AC, you're on AM 1420, The Answer. Fire away. Hello, Bob. Hello, Good AC. show. Thank you. A uh, couple comments on land and taking possession of land. We need to understand history. The Israelis did not take the land from the Palestinians. It was given to them by the U.N. It was even prophesied in the Old Testament by the Jewish prophet Isaiah. He said, who hath heard such a thing, who hath seen such things, shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day, or shall a nation be born at once? Now, in three wars, 1956, 1967, and 1973, Israel was attacked by Islamic nations, greatly outnumbered, yet they defeated their under Lord Balfour in 1921. Why? Because a Jewish scientist developed the organic solvent acetone, which was a great help to the British Empire in defeating the Germans in World War I. And they rewarded the scientist, Lord Balfour, the Balfour Declaration, as a result of the efforts of this Jewish scientist. That, that was his contribution to the British Empire. So this stuff about them taking land, no way. Okay? Well, I would, I would take Nation. issue with only one word of what you said, okay. um, AC, and that is that the word given. They were given the land by the United Nations. All the United Nations did was codify it. All the United Nations did was, was make it official because they didn't give them land that belonged to somebody else. The United Nations simply recognized that, yes, your ancestral land is still your land, and we are going to call it you know, uh, recognize it as a nation state. Um, it, it, because to me, give, saying the UN gave it to them, they didn't take I know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say yeah, you know, you're they didn't correct. take you're it. Correct, it, it was, but but it, wasn't, it wasn't given to them. All the United Nations did was say, yeah, we recognize it's your land. It always has right. been, going back to 1200 B.C. And, uh, yeah, we're going to recognize it as such. They didn't give them anything because giving it to them indicates that the UN had some sort of ownership of it or somebody else did and it was being given away, and it was not. Right. No, you're, you're correct on that. Uh, All right. Wrong use of words on, on Yeah, my no, part. it's okay, because I know what your point was, and it was a good one, and you were spot on. Uh, I just wanted to like, clarify that, uh, you know, nothing was given to them. It was just simply the U.N. said what everybody knew anyway. Yeah, this is your land. Of course it is. Uh, but, A.C., great point, great history lesson there, too, my friend. Thank you for the call. Let's go to John next, who's in Chardon. John, on AM 1420, The Answer. Go ahead, John. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, because marijuana is an addictive and gateway drug to other more powerful drugs. Yes, it is. This means that good judgment and common sense go out the window because these drugs would be their new god. 
Well, yeah, um, I, I, it's one of the reasons why so many of us fought against um, the legalization of recreational marijuana in the state and fought against issue one. I agree with you, John. It, uh, you know, it, it, what what makes it really frustrating to me, and I'll build on what you just said here. Thank you for the call, my friend. I'll build on what you just said here. Those on the left that pushed and passed issue two, legalized weed. Stoners and potheads and burnouts. Sorry, I have no respect for you. Just that's just the way it is. They like to say, "Well, it's no different than alcohol. Alcohol pollutes your mind as well. Alcohol makes you uh, drunk uh, and 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 outside of your normal sensibility. So why do you care if burnouts get high, or we get high? We we, we this is a natural plant, and so it and it's no different than alcohol. It is absolutely very 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 different than alcohol. There are potheads, the burnouts who, who who smoke this stuff, a lot of them who smoke it every single day, multiple times a day before work. On their lunch break, they go out and smoke weed. They go take a toke or two or three to give themselves just a little bit of a buzz going to get them through the rest of their day. Nobody does that with alcohol. Nobody goes and gets a little bit drunk before they go to work. Nobody does that. Nobody goes and gets a little bit drunk uh, during their lunch break. They go and eat in their break room. And they, and they drink their Coke or their coffee or whatever it is that they do. They don't go out and hit a couple of scotches before they go back to the job. Weed is passed around and is promoted and is accepted as such a just a casual thing like now smoking a cigarette. I'm going to go have a smoke break. Now they go out and have pot breaks. And as for the safety aspect of it, there are enough impaired drivers on the road already. It's true from alcohol but at least alcoholic or uh, excuse me uh, drunk drivers impaired drivers can be detected at the time of their actual being actually being drunk whereas potheads can go out there and drive and there is no way for a cop to prove that they have been using and that they are stoned they can look at with observable things like dilated pupils and you know speech and so forth, but they cannot prove it definitively because there's no test like a breathalyzer that they can refuse. A drunk refuses to blow in the breathalyzer, automatic conviction. You lose your license for six months or whatever the heck the punishment is now because it's obvious. But with weed, it'll stay in your system for up to 30 days, and all a pothead who's out there driving erratically has to say is, I'm not high. Yeah, you're going to test my blood if you want to, but it's going to show weed from two weeks ago, or it's going to show weed from two days ago, and and you're not going to be able to prove that I was impaired. And it's going to lead to what is being proven in multiple states that have indeed allowed recreational weed to pollute the air of of the people of their states, traffic accidents and encounters with, with impaired drivers have skyrocketed, putting more and more and more people in danger. And by the way, you know how the left likes to say that guns are the leading uh, killer of children in the United States? It's a complete lie. It's a misnomer. John Lott and I talk about that on today's Strictly Speaking. There are more people who are killed by drunk drivers than by 
firearms. Uh, automobile accidents are going to go through the roof because of this uh, ridiculous uh, issue that was passed. Again, a ballot initiative, not a constitutional amendment, a ballot initiative, and thus subject to regulation by the Ohio General Assembly, and I hope they do indeed pass uh, that regulation. All right. Going to get a time out here. Top of the top of the hour news coming up. We were disappointed by the passage of Issue 2. We were even more disappointed by the passage of Issue 1. Abortion on demand in the state of Ohio all the way up until, until the moment of birth. 30 days, by the way, is tomorrow. 30 days is tomorrow. It takes effect. We're going to talk to somebody who has great regret over that and great regret over her own decision. The author of a book... This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, hour number three is underway. Thanks so much for being with us. Really great conversation so far. Uh, great guest, Jack Windsor. We had great conversations with you, and I look forward to continuing that trend here in hour number three. So we just talked a lot about uh, issue two, which unfortunately passed on November 7th, which, of course, legalizes recreational marijuana in the state of Ohio. There are a lot of movements now in the Ohio General Assembly to pass bills that kind of limit a little bit of that, regulate a little bit of, uh, a little bit of that about as far as the amount you can have and about its strength and so on and so forth. All very, very important stuff. That was, however, as important as it is, and it is big, was second um, to the Issue 1 passage, which, of course, legalized abortion in the state of Ohio, on demand, for any reason, as long as the provider agrees, all the way up until the moment of birth. That is enough to make you just, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, cringe, to say the least. It makes a lot of us cry, quite frankly. It also, of course, the passage of Issue 1, took rights, the rights away from parents to counsel their children, away from their sadly, socially contagion-driven uh, impulses to want to change their sex and to take puberty blockers and take uh, cross-sex hormones and other things. All of that is a byproduct of the passage of Issue 1. But the biggest part of it, of course, is the abortion aspect of it. And this is a conversation that we're going to have right now that I really wish we could have had about two months ago. not saying it would have made a difference since the state of Ohio decided that dead babies don't matter to them by the uh, by a, a margin of around 14 points among those who voted. Not sure it would have changed that many people's minds, but it might change some. And that's why, whether it was before November 7th or today, it is a conversation worth having. 
We're joined now by Bobby Gosden, who is an author of sorts. She has written a book that is very, very personal about the one of the most personal decisions I'm certain she's ever made in her life, and that is the abortion that she chose to have, and the regret that has um, that has that has followed it. Her book is, in fact, entitled "My Abortion, My Regret," and she joins us now on AM fourteen twenty, The Answer. Bobby, thank you so much for joining us this morning. How are you? I am blessed. Thank you, Bob, for having me. I appreciate it. It's uh, it's my pleasure to have you, Bobby. I don't know you. Uh, most of the people I put on, if, unless they're regular callers, are celebrities or authors or of some note where I can do a little research and find out a little bit about them. I am going into this conversation virtually blind with the exception of the book title. So I want to ask you, um, uh, first of all, to tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll talk a little bit about the decision you made and why you decided to chronicle your experience in this book. Tell us about yourself. Okay, um, I'm originally from Barberton, Ohio. Um, I relocated here in Cleveland, and so now I consider myself a Clevelander. Um, the reason why I had my abortion, well, num- number one, with uh, New Year's coming on, it's important that people understand that when you're intoxicated, sometimes we make very bad choices. And that is what happened to me New Year's Eve, ninety. 90- 1997. I had a few drinks, had just, uh, you know, one night fling, so to speak. And little did I know I was creating a baby. And um, I chose to terminate because of just my circumstances. And the book tells that. But let me tell you, they don't tell you what happens when you leave the clinic. Because I was raised pro-choice my whole life. And so to me, I thought, okay, I could do this. And so when I went to the clinic, when you leave, there's no turning back. Death is final. And it's not a blob. Okay, let me, let me, let me interrupt for just a minute here sure. just because I want to I wanna make sure we're not glossing over things as we, as we get into your story. The, um, the occasion <clears throat> which led to your pregnancy um the individual that you were with um a part of this decision did you never see him again was it just a one-nighter and he ran off does he even know right no 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 he i knew him um but he was just a friend i knew it was never going to turn into a relationship Mm -hmm. um and so i just told him that i'd miscarried which was a lie i you know decided to have an abortion because he would have wanted to keep the baby. Oh, okay. There you go. I was going to say, why did you lie to him? Why didn't you just say, Hey, you know, we, we, when we did our thing, um, I got pregnant and, um, I'm going to, I'm going to have an abortion. You, you felt like he would have fought you on that. Uh, No, actually he knew I I turned up pregnant. Um, because actually I was uh, getting lab work to go have a tubal ligation because I had complications with my two existing kids. And so when this came up, I was like in shock. And so he was, he would have been a great father. Okay. However, with my circumstances, my financial, I, I was just overwhelmed. So I thought, Oh my gosh, if something happens to me, because, you know, I had complications before who's going to raise my two kids. Mm-hmm. And so I just told him that I miscarried because I knew it would break his heart. Okay. 
That's and, a, that's a that's uh, a that's a tragic element to the story already, and I'm sure that's part of the regret you're talking about. So, I apologize for that intrusion. So let's um, let's let's move on now. Um, you talked about leaving the clinic. I want to talk about arriving at the clinic. I want to talk about when you did this. At what point? Uh, first of all, how far along were you when you found out you were pregnant, and at what point after that did you decide you were going to go to the clinic? I found out probably within three three, four weeks because, like I said, I was getting lab work done to get my tubal ligation. Mm-hmm. And um, so when it came back, I wanted it done as soon as possible. Like it was between five to six weeks I had my termination, which I don't care if it was 30 weeks. I don't care if it was one week. <laughs> you know, the regret is still there. Mm-hmm. Um. If it had not been, well, first of all, let me let me let you continue where I did interrupt you to ask you about that night and about the father. You started to say it's not a blob, and I want you to pick that up. Right, because it's not. Um, people make it sound like, oh, it's just a blob. No, it was a baby. Um, so in reality, I, I paid the doctor to kill my baby. <laughs> so that's how I see it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, <clears throat> But you, you, know, you said you said you grew up pro-choice. Um, yes. Was that from mom, or is that from yes. school, or is that from yes. you know, outside sources? No, from sources? my mother who had abortions herself. It was kind of a form of, oops, I made a mistake. No, a mistake is going to the store and you meant to get orange juice, but you grabbed milk. But that's a mistake. This was a baby. Abortions plural, you said, for your mom? Yeah, she had, she had a few. Mm-hmm, correct. So, um... You decided it's no big deal then just to, uh, you know, I'm just going to tell the father of this child uh, that you admit, even though you were pro-choice. How do you how do you square that, by the way? Help me out. If you were raised as a pro-choice woman for all the reasons you just described, yet you have a baby and, and, you know, you become pregnant and you recognize it's not just a blob. This is a life. This is a baby. How do, how did you how do you square those two things? How did you not see it as exactly what you were raised to believe that? No, this is just a blob of protoplasm and cells and whatnot. And it's not a real baby. And I'm fine to do this. Because when I found out my pregnancies before, um, I was just elated. I mean, when you know that you have that baby growing inside of you and you see that positive pregnancy test and you're just so excited, I knew, I knew then, it, it, you know, at, during those pregnancies that they were babies. So I didn't think anything different of my third pregnancy. I knew it was a baby. Mm-hmm. Okay. But so that, in that my mind, I kept you... thinking, mm-hmm. <laughs> pardon no, I said that makes some sense because you had had the two previous babies, even though with your complications, you knew what a baby was and you, you knew what you know a blob of cells would be, and that is not what you were faced with. And so you made this decision, and now let's get to where, again, I interrupted you. You said leaving the clinic, you feel how? A hole in my soul. Um, they don't tell you because people tell you, oh, just go to the clinic. Your problem will be solved. No, it's just began. It's been 25 years, and my decision still haunts me. I still grieve. I still cry. Writing that book, My Abortion, My Regret, was one of the hardest things I've done because I had to walk away from writing it a couple times because you just want to go back in and say, no, don't do it, don't do it. But So that inspired me to write it to help others see that 
that once you make that decision, there's no going back. If you just turned us on this morning, first of all, where you been? Second of all, let me tell you, we're talking to Bobby Gosden. She is a Barberton native and a Clevelander now who is talking about her abortion because she wrote about her abortion and her profound regret uh, from back in 19, what did you say, 98 or 1999? No, 1997. It was New Year's Eve. Got it. Mm-hmm. 1997. Yes. Your book is called My Abortion, My Regret, and you talk about feeling like you, you, you lost your soul almost. Um, where, did you, where did you turn for comfort? Did you find comfort? How did you handle that feeling as you walked out of that clinic and the subsequent regret and, and, and uh, depression, I would imagine, that comes with it in the, in the subsequent days and weeks? Um, you don't. You walk out of the clinic, and I went home, and I looked at my positive pregnancy test, but now it was negative. And I probably, I wrote about it in the book, I probably looked at that pregnancy test a million times, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, there is no nothing. And to make injury worse, my brother, he had a son, and our due dates were like a week apart. So that just added insult to injury. And then you try to you try to move on, you try to put it in the back of your mind, but each month you think, oh gosh, I would have been three months pregnant. I would have been four months. I would have been feeling the baby kick because I knew that experience because I'd had two previous pregnancies. And um, yeah, so you grieve, but you can't tell a whole bunch of people because they're going to just judge you. And um, yeah, so I just try to pick up the pieces, but when my children came home, I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, I didn't just, you know, abort a baby. I took a sibling from them. And, uh, yeah, I don't I don't think that you ever recover unless you just, you know, it's just normal to you. And you just think, well, I don't care. But I have a heart for babies and I love them. And so it was very, very difficult to see, you know, coworkers that were pregnant and knowing that I was no longer. And, uh, yes. So I just was empty and you just cry a lot. I grieve. I still cry. Um, yes, it was just, uh, very hard. And then knowing, you know, looking at the father and saying, Oh, I miscarried knowing that I'm lying. And then to add insult to injury, a few years later, when my aborted baby would have been three, I'm looking through the Akron Beacon Journal obituaries, and there was what would have been the grandfather, and he had no grandchildren. That hit me hard, Bob, because I'm like, oh, my gosh, I aborted his only grandchild. And the fast forward, the father of the baby, our baby would have been 18. He passed away. And again, he had no children, but they talked about how he was a great uncle and he would have been a great father. And let me tell you, that was like a punch in the stomach again and again. And so I guess it never goes away and it won't go away. I know God's forgiven me, but it's taken a long time to forgive myself. Let me ask you um, how you felt uh, over the course of these last several months in the state of Ohio Watching those who are pushing for issue one to pass, um, celebrating their abortions. They weren't, 
they weren't saying, look, sometimes it's a necessary thing that has to be done. You know, the old adage of safe, rare, and legal, or rare, safe, and legal, whatever order it was in. Um, and um, that went out the window. It's not something that should be rare. It's something that should be whenever we want. It's not something that should be um, um, a shameful thing. It's not something that should be a hard decision. Um, you know, we, we And it shouldn't have to be within a certain number of weeks. If we decide in the eighth month that we just can't handle this baby right now, then it should be up to us because of our mental health. And all we have to do is convince the provider that my mental health is in jeopardy here if I have this child, and yep, we'll uh, we'll cut that baby apart. Um, what did you think of these last several months in the fight over the abortion uh, constitutional amendment? Actually, it disgusted me because, like you said, now they could just do it on demand, demand, and um, that's barbaric. That to me is child sacrificing because. In my book, I explained, okay, I had two existing children at the time of my abortion, and they were 8 and 10. That would be like me calling them to the living room and saying, okay, one of you have to go because mommy can't afford you. That would be murder. So what's the difference if I'm carrying a baby and I go to the abortion clinic and pay a doctor to kill my baby? Or, like I said, I look at my 8 and 10-year-old and say, one of you has to die because I'm struggling financially and I can't afford to feed you both. There's no difference. Right. Murder is murder. What what have uh, what have your children said to you since that time? Um, you know, you you point out it was you know a realization that I deprived them of a, of a sibling. Um, did they forgive you? And did it take a long time? I don't know if they forgive me. They were they were uh, young when I told them. But because they were probably, I don't know what their mindset was, but I told them, you know, that I had had abortion, that I had lied to them, that I did not miscarry because I wanted my truth not to be hidden from my children because I didn't want my son or my daughter to think it was okay to have an abortion. Because once I left the clinic, let me tell you, I was pro-life and I still am. Um, it changes you. I, I apologize. Maybe you said this and I missed it, but are your children boys or girls, one of each? My oldest is a girl, and then my youngest was is a boy. But, um, le- but let me tell you, even that, I always had a feeling that my third baby was a boy. I've always referenced him as a boy. The reason I asked is... Um, I'm curious, did the conversation about birth control and about um, uh, talking to you if your daughter found herself in a similar situation to yours, what kind of counseling happened there if there was ever a, you know, a pregnancy that wasn't exactly planned? And uh, uh, Well, neither uh, one of them have children, okay. but I made it very, very clear. You might be having a good time New Year's Eve and drinking or under some substance, and you might be making a decision, but you also might be creating a baby. And that's what I did. So I always told them, don't have sex. <laughs> I mean, there's other choices. Like, I should have been responsible, Bob. I should have said, gosh, I'm not going to get drunk tonight and make a bad choice. But I did. And I created a baby. And my baby had to pay for my bad choice. So I always told them and stressed to them. Be sure you know what you're doing. Make sure you take care of yourself and you're protected because you you never know. You could be creating a baby. 
Yeah, well, that's um, that's why they call it the act of procreation. And uh, too many people, Correct. too many young people in particular, don't seem to realize that, that uh, what you are doing right now, the decision you are making, uh, even on a moment's notice, whether it's impulsive or whether you're drunk and impaired, it doesn't matter. You need to have your wits about you enough to know that what you're about to do could result in a baby. And, uh, and, and are you ready for that before you make that decision? If that, if that uh, situation does happen, are you prepared to have this affect the rest of your life? Because it will, and, uh, and not enough people do that. So I'm sure that's part of what you cover in the book. So, um, Bobby, where do, you, uh, where do we get this book? How can people read your It's, your, it's your launching on Amazon Kindle this weekend. Mm-hmm. So I'm really, really excited about that, and it's right in time for New Year's Eve, because um, New Year's Eve is a holiday that is very depressing to me. Um, <laughs> and I always think, what if, what would be, would, you know, what kind of, you know, sibling would it have been, you know, it would have been my third child. And so right away, I got my tubes tied shortly after my abortion, because one, I didn't, I, I didn't deserve any more babies. God had blessed me with that third one, and I terminated it. So, were you? A, I, were, sure. I apologize, but were were you a, a believer in birth control? And are you now? Are you okay with the pill or the other methods of birth control? Um, that's somebody's personal decision. I can't make that decision for them. Um, the only reason I, I ask is because it's a part of the discussion now with respect to abortion. Like there are many who are completely opposed to abortion and completely opposed to even um, birth control. Contraception is a very controversial issue for many in this uh, in this abortion battle. So I just wondered, were you on any kind of birth control when you had your uh, New Year's Eve you know, situation happen? No, I wasn't. Because I wasn't having sex and I was planning on getting, getting my tubes tied. So yeah. getting birth control kind of didn't make sense at the mm-hmm. time. But if, if it was a decision for someone to be on birth control or having unprotected sex and getting pregnant, I think I would go with, you know, um, having some sort of protection. Some sort of contraception, yeah. And I, I think most But I also, kind of too, know. believe that, you know, women need to really start valuing themselves. I mean, not that the father of my baby was a bad person, but I'm saying you see just girls sleeping with anybody and guys just bed hopping, and that's not a good thing. Girls really need to think, gosh, is this a stand-up gentleman that if I did turn up pregnant, would he take responsibility? Or would he just have me go get on welfare? Right. Yeah, those are all very important concerns. So the book is called My Abortion, My Regret. You said it's coming out on Amazon in Kindle form, This weekend, right? yes. We're, this weekend. Yeah, it's going to be, they're launching it this weekend. Okay. Well, I'm glad we were able to have this conversation. Again, it's a very sobering conversation, and especially the fact that it's uh, coming after, you know, just a month after the uh, November 7th uh, decision to legalize abortion in the state up until the moment of birth. But hopefully people will hear your words and heed them and put themselves in a better position to... Um, you know, to avoid uh, the trappings of something like this. I still believe that every baby is a blessing, but uh, not, yes. pe- not everyone realizes and recognizes the blessing that they have when that baby, uh, you know, is, is, is realized or, you know, is, is, is a fact of life for them. So um, make sure that people, I hope people make sure to listen to your words and listen to your regret before they go and do something like this that would, uh, that would impact them for the rest of their lives. Um, Bobby Gosden, thank you. I wish you the very lest, uh, best of luck with the book. And we appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Have a blessed day. Thank you. You do. 
Keeping you informed among the uninformed. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Indeed it is. 11.37 now. Thanks for being with us on AM 1420 The Answer. Thanks again to my guest um, who joined us, uh, Bobby Gosden. Uh, it's a pretty personal story there. Uh, one that I think was worth hearing. Um, and I hope you felt the same way, too. Like I said, um, we have been listening to pro-abortion uh, people for the last several months talking about how they feel proud of their abortions. They go to the uh, Women's March in D.C. the day after the um, March for Life every year, wearing their, their shirts that say, shout your abortion, scream your abortion. They're proud of decisions that they've made that take the lives of innocent babies. And so to hear somebody like Bobby Gosden come on and talk about this um, in her book, My Abortion, My Regret, and to talk about the reality, it kind of reminds me, in a, in a, in a small way, I guess, of the detransitioners that we are starting to see come out publicly and uh, profess their own regret for having done something as permanent and as impactful and as, quite frankly, awful as um, mutilating their bodies. They get caught up into this wave of, of uh, uh, you know, social contagion on changing your sex and getting popularity and getting clicks and getting clout. And, and you're so brave and you're so courageous. You're not a real girl. You're a fake girl or, a boy, or whatever the case might be in, 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 the, in the reverse. And, and then they go through with it and then they live with the most extraordinary regret saying, what have I done? What have I done? And how can I undo it? I can't undo it. It's impossible to undo. It's permanent. And uh, their regrets are, are, are what people need to hear. Their regrets are what young girls and boys who are being pressured by social media influencers, teachers, and counselors, and sometimes their own warped left-wing parents trying to out... Um, woke their friends you know i've got i've got two kids and they're both trans so i've got three kids one trans one's one's non-binary and one is pansexual i mean they're trying to to literally outdo one another for for their for their woke clout and i hate that phrasing but it's the only way i think i can say it and then the kids do it and then, and then they look back and they say what did you do to me what did you allow me to do to myself what's wrong with you that regret is what's going to maybe maybe having detransitioners Expressing their regret is going to maybe stop some of these kids from making these decisions and maybe stop some of the parents uh, from allowing it to happen and thinking, oh, I'm just providing gender-affirming care for Junior, and I'll let Junior decide whether Junior is a male or a female and all this other nonsense. Maybe that regret will stop people, and maybe Bobby Gosden's regret over her abortion will make people think a little bit, especially if they read her book, uh, will make them think about uh, that unchanging profound regret you cannot change it you cannot go back okay 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110 let's go to yanina yanina is in university heights hi yanina go ahead yes uh good morning great show as always well um i got information about bill ackman uh, he's a harvard graduate and he owns the company and he was donating money for years and years and years he's a president He's a he's you know net worth like three point eight billion dollar on Forbes, and he said you know that Harvard needs to have examination on antisemitism. 
because this is absolutely incredible. Uh, he's you know, originally from New York, and he's like 57 years old. And um, he has a company, he's a CEO of Person Square Capital Management. He did not know what happened with Israel in Israel because he was very busy. He's very pro-Israel. He graduated from college, uh, from Harvard, and he was just going, uh, and he wrote the letter. He wrote the letter for the president of the Harvard. His last name is Gay, and he said that all the colleges, he was talking about MIT, uh, Penn, Harvard, Penn, and MIT presidents, president, he said, they all must resign in disgrace or reevaluate all their attitude to the, you know, Jewish community and Jewish. I'm glad he wrote that. I'm glad he wrote that letter because it's true. They all should resign in disgrace. Uh, Representative Stefanik, in that, because we played that clip earlier, and I know that's what you're referring to, Yanina, and thank you so much for the call. Representative Stefanik gave them each an opportunity to walk back their equivocation and their little, you know, eh, contextual things, maybe, maybe not, and say, look, is it okay to call for the genocide of anybody, any organization of people, or any group of people, any ethnic ethnic group of people, etc.? Just say, uh, no, it's not okay. And if I ask you, is it a violation of your university's code of conduct, just say yes, unequivocally. Of course, it is against our code of conduct to call for the genocide of Jews. But they wouldn't say it. She spent three and a half minutes fighting with them, trying to convince them to say it, and they would not say it. So, yes, I think they all should resign in disgrace. Yanina, thank you so much for the phone call. I'm going to use my last minute with this. When, when they say that your work has all been debunked, by whom? And, and, and to, what, to what degree of consensus? Right. Well, I mean, it's not too surprising. You're going to find academics who disagree with me in different ways. They go and do their studies, and they'll go and claim that gun control is great, uh, that that's the way. And, uh,